from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. So about 10 years ago, an entrepreneur, a recent Stanford dropout, walked into some big corporate offices of a well-established company and struck a deal. The suited-up execs sitting around the table were floored by the young dynamo in front of them and the new technology that she laid before them. The technology promised to upend their industry. They could either get on board with it, lead the charge, be on the cutting edge, or they could watch this up-and-coming CEO take over their space. They quickly inked a large exclusive deal. They couldn't risk this technology, this opportunity, going to a competitor. But in their haste, these executives failed to ask some fundamental questions, like whether or not the technology actually worked. The dazzling young entrepreneur was Elizabeth Holmes. The technology she peddled was a device that promised to run comprehensive tests with just a finger prick of blood. And that big company, that was Walgreens. In a story that has now become infamous in Silicon Valley, Holmes's technology did not actually work. People were ending up with incorrect results, they were getting diagnosed with diseases they did not actually have, and it took about five years for all of this to unravel, and then another two years for Walgreens to finally settle up with Holmes's startup. But Walgreens is far from the only big incumbent company that's fallen prey to the lure of innovation. In fact, we see this all the time. I like to call it corporate innovation theater. And believe me when I tell you, it is big business. Incumbents, in their desperate fear of going extinct, will throw massive amounts of resources at cutting-edge technology. And all too often, they don't really do their diligence. They try to put money into things that aren't quite real yet, and they staff teams to work on things like nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, data science, internet of things, and yes, blockchain, before they have a strong sense of why. So what is innovation theater? The way I define it, it's a performance enacted by incumbent companies to demonstrate that they're still fresh, innovative, and on the cutting edge. I used to say in 2015, when I would walk into banks that were doing just generic blockchain things, it was like we'd be walking through their lobby and they would show me their art installation that they would have in their lobby and they would say, ah, yes, and here's our blockchain. Keep moving, keep walking. This week, we're diving into enterprises and their experimentation with blockchain, not Bitcoin. Ah, this topic, this topic, it really, really grinds my gears. We'll be discussing the wide and varied definitions that a blockchain quote-unquote encompasses, a brief history of enterprise blockchain initiatives. We'll also do a where are they now review of some of our favorite enterprise blockchain companies and their wild claims. And we'll get into where we are now and where we think 
enterprises meddling with blockchains might take us. So without further ado, let's get to the gear grinding. So the word blockchain. What's Jill, in a blockchain? <laughs> does that grind your gears? <laughs> Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. I have to say, as someone who has pitched blockchains for four years and still gets pitched them, it internally, like there is when I hear someone say, oh, we're we're building the world's fastest blockchain, there is like a piece of me that just dies. It just, There's just a visceral reaction, right? It's like the vomit bucket is not close enough. What, what kills and me I is stroke. when it's used as a verb. We're blockchaining oh, yeah. this. Well, we're blockchaining well, lettuce supply chain. Uh, I'm going to put that lettuce on a blockchain. I only eat blockchain <laughs> lettuce. That's my new diet. I only eat things that have been on a blockchain. <laughs> I'm going to be so skinny. It's shred season. <laughs> it's shred season, baby. Put on those Bitcoin bikinis and eat your blockchain lettuce. <laughs> All right. But <laughs> let's. we're getting distracted here as we do. But let's talk about the word blockchain. So there's a great presentation that was done at a conference for mathematicians and computer science academics where someone got on stage as if, he about, as if he was about to present. And he just said the word blockchain over and over again and clicked through slides. And he said, blockchain, 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 blockchains, blockchaining blockchains. How many blocks would a blockchain chain if a blockchain could chain blocks? Now, <laughs> I, I just, it kills I me to read this. that. It was some, and it was some like nerdy academic doing this too, right? It wasn't like a comedian. <laughs> It could have been. But here's the thing that I find so richly ironic is if you've read the Bitcoin white paper, uh, Satoshi doesn't even mention the word blockchain in that white paper. And I don't think the word blockchain was really even used until 2012 or 2013 in a Bitcoin talk forum discussion um, where the word blockchain was used to reference the underlying ledger, uh, the Bitcoin ledger. But huh. what's funny is if you read all of these marketing materials that companies put out, right, major financial services companies, technology companies, you see blockchain all over the place. And people ask me, all the time. I mean, my life in 2016 was basically everyone I had ever met or ever known in a corporate setting. And I was a consultant and I had worked with tons of corporate. And then I went to business school. Boo but all of these people were like, hey, Meltem, can you come in and teach our uh, organization about the blockchain? And I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. The I blockchain. <laughs> they were like, the block. Tell me about the blockchain. So <laughs> let's talk about the blockchain. Yeah, I think it's worth kicking off this episode with some exploration of the definition of blockchain, the components that may or may not make up a blockchain, depending on who you talk to, because no one has bastardized that word more than enterprises taking on this this space. Now, Actually, consultants, consultants and um, think tanks may have done it more. Oh, God. Okay. We'll have to do another episode on them. But for enterprise blockchain... We're going to dive into this. So my favorite resource on the components that make up a blockchain is a very short, very readable piece by Arvind Narayanan and Jeremy Clark called Bitcoin's Academic Pedigree. Now, I know, I know this episode we're talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is the OG blockchain. So let's just start there. So the whole idea of this paper is that the Bitcoin blockchain is comprised of several underlying technologies or components that have actually been around for decades, mostly since the 80s. And as they lay it out, there are a few things that make up the Bitcoin blockchain and make it unique. 
Firstly, it's an app-end-only ledger, meaning you can add new transactions to it, but you can't remove or modify any of the past transactions. Uh, it will be clear if the ledger has been tampered with, uh, and this is done using succinct, uh, succinct cryptographic digest of the state of the ledger, or hashes. Uh, the ledger is not stored on a single machine, but it's a global data structure. It's replicated across any machine that elects to participate. And due to this setup, there's also, there also needs to be a way for the participating machines to agree to the state of the ledger, i.e. there needs to be a consensus mechanism. So that's five or six different components that they lay out that make up the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, Arvind and Jeremy are very diplomatic, and they even note at the end of the article that, quote, while this article has emphasized that private or permissioned blockchains omit most of Bitcoin's innovations, this doesn't this isn't meant to diminish the interesting work happening in this space. A permissioned blockchain places restrictions on who can join the network, write transactions, or mine blocks. So while I think that this is a really helpful place to start in defining the word blockchain, they actually even say at the end of this article that none of this really applies very well to permissioned blockchains, which still leaves us with the question of what the hell is a permissioned blockchain or what are these databases, this, this technology that most of these enterprises are actually experimenting with. And there's a really great example of this. I don't know if you want to dive into. <laughs> Absolutely, because I started my career as a consultant at Deloitte. And, uh, you know, we sold innovation and disruption to companies all the time. But one of the best examples of this was Deloitte's proud development of an editable blockchain. And if this doesn't just make your eyeballs fall out of their sockets, then mm. you're doing it wrong. <laughs> So look, here's what was so funny about it, right? So all of these enterprises started learning about blockchain because of Bitcoin and all of the work that was happening around digital currencies. And they're like, wait a minute. Obviously, there are enterprising people who are like, we're never going to be able to sell magical internet money to enterprises, but we can sell consulting. We can sell innovation. Let's do this blockchain thing. And so all of the consulting firms got on the bandwagon. There were a bunch of firms that were started that we'll talk about that were creating consortia and companies and these consulting business models and capitalizing them like startups, which was insane. But really the core premise of a blockchain is its immutability, right? The fact that you can't go back and change the record of what's happened over time. You can't go back and remove or edit transactions in the Bitcoin ledger. That is one of the that is actually probably the only reason that the Bitcoin blockchain is valuable. It's, it's immutable, right? And we've seen it time and time again when blockchains are no longer immutable, there's fundamental question about how valuable that is as sound money. So Deloitte came out and said, they were like, wait a minute, we're talking to all these enterprises. They want to edit data. You know what we should do? We should make an editable blockchain. And so <laughs> they made this editable blockchain, which really, like in my view, you have a database, right? The point of a database is you can go and you can edit records. So basically, you have a distributed database. So we'll post the paper in the show notes. It's really funny. Um, people had a good laugh about it. Like I watched people on stages who have no idea what distributed anything is talking about DLTs. And really what it is, is people trying to find ways to edit out the scariness of Bitcoin. That's exactly right. I mean, there was a period in 2015, 2016, in which 
I think basically anyone who was wearing a suit just wasn't allowed to say the word blockchain because blockchain was associated with Bitcoin. And that was very and Bitcoin scary. Is, Bitcoin is criminal money for people who are selling drugs on the internet. Oh, yeah. Bitcoin was only for the Silk Road and for terrorist organizations doing money laundering. That was what people thought. And so they wouldn't use the word blockchain. It was only, I think, in sort of end of 2016 into 2017 that enterprises actually started marketing themselves as using blockchain technology, not DLT or whatever, whatever buzzword bingo word you want to use. Alex, I'll take blockchain for 500. <laughs> and I'll up you. I'll do it for 1,000. <laughs> I, I can spew nonsense too, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so there is actually a research team out of Cambridge University in the UK uh, that looked into creating a conceptual framework around what is DLT is led by a researcher named Michelle Rocks. Um, I actually have helped in a very, very small way uh, to contribute to this research. But a lot of people in the space, like Angela Walsh, um, Nick Carter, etc., a lot of people contributed to it. And I think it actually came out pretty well. So I think it's really worth reading. We'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. But I don't well, think I that think the, the more, blockchain would pass the test. It definitely would not. But the more important thing here is also who is part of the blockchain, right? And one of the bigger issues I had around shared record keeping and multi-party consensus and independent validation is if you're forming these consortia and you're setting up nodes, right? It's all about who runs these nodes and who's participating in the network. The only people who are participating in these private blockchains, which you could think about almost like the walled private intranets that corporates had back in the day. And I know because I used a corporate intranet in my early days in corporate America. Come on, but, Milton, uh, you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jill. You called me an old biddy like three weeks ago. So, you know, <laughs> make up your mind. But um, what I think is really interesting, right? So if you have a contractual relationship, say you are Walmart, right? We've been making fun of Walmart with their salad chain. But say you all are Walmart, you already have a contractual relationship with, you know, your 10 lettuce suppliers, let's say. You already have a legal relationship. And so um, you all get on this blockchain and you spend a ton of money transitioning from using an ERP or an enterprise um, system and you move over to a blockchain you're the only nodes in that blockchain. So like, what have you fundamentally changed? Because all you're doing is sharing a database just in a different way. And so to me, it's like people want to use blockchains because it's cool to use blockchains, but I don't really know what the end goal is and how it really changes anything. But we're yeah, going to dive this, into that. This Before, before we switch gears, I want to just talk for a second about one other piece of uh, of terminology that people get confused around all the time. Now, this, I think, grinds my gears more than any other bit of confusion around uh, terminology in this space, and that's the difference between distributed and decentralized. You know what my favorite is, Jill, is there's actually um, this, this great graphic, right? And it comes from a textbook or an academic white paper, but it has three charts side by side. It's um, centralized, distributed, decentralized, right? And it's like little dots with little lines between them that show how these things are networked. Literally yeah. every single effing presentation I saw 
between 2015, 2018 had that stupid effing graphic in it and everyone just cut and pasted it. And I'm like, can you at least like you raised $50 million for your stupid enterprise blockchain. Can you at least like make your own graphic and actually read the academic white paper so that you understand what the F it is you're talking about? Like that's, the, that's level, the thing is I, the I don't have a problem intellectual with the laziness. The level of intellectual laziness is staggering because distributed computing <laughs> has been around for a long time. I just knocked did over just, my coffee did you mug. you just throw Peter McCormick's microphone on the ground? <laughs> no, I actually was like waving my arms around like a psychopath. By the way, I'm at the MIT Bitcoin Expo. I'm sitting in like a tiny little office um, and I just have been gesticulating because I'm so riled up by this garbage enterprise blockchain talk that I'm knocking stuff over. So sorry, Hugo. I apologize sincerely for uh, throwing coffee on the floor. <laughs> and shout out to Peter McCormick who is letting us borrow equipment here. But All right. I, I wanted to say I don't actually have an issue with the image itself. It's just that people don't seem to be able to grasp that there is actually then a difference between decentralized and distributed and be able to to articulate what that is. Um, let's talk about all of these companies that cropped up because I got pitched by them for four years. I was asked about them for four years. I had to talk about them for four years. And I worked at one. I worked at one. (laughs) So you know how, um, you'll watch these video shows that are like celebrities. Where are they now? Lindsay Lohan. Where is she now? Rehab. (laughs) No, she's like partying. She has her own TV show. She's hanging out. Um, That's right. She's probably... She's partying in Mykonos, bitch, right? She's probably partying with Craig Wright in Mykonos. He likes to (laughs) hang out there. All right. So where are they now? Are we doing where are they now blockchain edition? We are. I want to start. We'll take turns. Okay. Who's in rehab, Melton? And who's in Mykonos? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, nobody's in Mykonos. Nobody's in Mykonos because everyone's at these sad like blockchain conferences. So everyone's nobody, at Money ever- Twenty Twenty. Yeah, that's right. Everyone's in what I call hell, um, which is enterprise <laughs> blockchain conferences. But let's start with my personal favorite, which is R three. Okay. Oh, I literally God. remember every bank. So a digital currency group, we'd raised money from a bunch of banks and we were working with them. And uh, I literally every single one called me and was like, Melton, Melton, how do we get into R3? Do we need to be in R3? And I was like, no, this will never work. This is the most obscene idea ever. Okay. Um, okay. R3- what is R3? For those who did okay. not have the pleasure of being in this industry in 2016, what is R3? Okay, so R3 is a company, R3 CEV, by the way, which is a fancy way of spelling receive. So if Bitcoin send, R3 was going to be. Shut received. up. Is it, that what it is? Yeah, R3 CEV is like. I never knew what like, R3 uh, CEV was. I always thought it was it's like, like terrible branding, but. No, it's a messed up way to spell receive, right? And then they realize that, like, well, you know how no company one, will be no like potato. And it's like the letter P, the number eight, and then an O. It's like potato, like so stupid. So they were R three CV. So what I, it was? I, to be honest, was a- I've never seen I've never seen a company do that. The last time I saw anything <laughs> like that was I think using AIM in like two thousand and three. But anyway, oh, I, I had a name like that on AIM. R3. Anyways, okay, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so R three was a consortium. It's basically a bunch of like 
banker people who had been around banks for a long time. They were known entities, right? So Bitcoin people are like scary weirdos buying drugs on the internet. These were suits, right? And the suits got together. They were like, we're forming a consortium. And basically, we're going to get all the banks together. And we're going to create a new financial system with a blockchain. It was obscene. Like, I didn't even understand it. I was like, I don't know what you do, but people poured money into it. And I don't even know how you value the equity of a consulting company because the multiple on a consulting company is like one, maybe two. If they have some form of proprietary tech, maybe it's like a seven or an eight. But this is not like it's, it made no sense. It absolutely made no and, sense. And they raised a okay, hundred so million effing dollars. A hundred million. Yeah, that's that is what is obscene to me is how much money got poured into this for a consulting company. Okay, let me tell you, I have been acting as an independent consultant for the last two years around blockchain technology because newsflash, consulting is actually the only business model. Consulting is the only product that has a market fit in blockchain technology as of now. There's no actual product, okay? But so R3, as you said, raised an obscene amount of money. It was founded by the former CEO of ICAP, which is a brokerage platform for Wall Street. So David, the CEO, presumably had great contacts with most of the big Wall Street banks. And the idea was to bring them all together to form a consortium to build then proprietary technology. I don't think that the idea at the outset was for it to be a consulting company. But now it's not even just a consulting company. It's actually a consortium that has joined another consortium. Spencer Bogart pointed this out on Twitter today. I think it's hilarious. So R3 just announced that they are extremely proud to be a founding member of the recently incorporated International Association of Trusted Blockchain Applications. Uh, would but you like some dressing with your word salad? <laughs> But here's what I think. This isn't the first time this, they've done this, right? So there was the R3 consortium, and then there was the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. Then there, there were like millions of these things that cropped up. And the whole logic was like, hey, all the banks are going to get together, and we're going to learn together on how to use a blockchain to change the world of finance. Okay, your competitors and you are going to sit in a room. Do you realize how unproductive that conversation is going to be? Yeah, and I, I mean, like, to be to be fair, like this, this does happen on Wall Street, right? So uh, with things like the FIX protocol, which is a protocol for doing uh, certain types of trades amongst Wall Street banks, all of the Wall Street banks had to get together and figure out a standard and make that happen. Uh, right. With things like the ISDA protocol, which is for credit default swaps, all the Wall Street right, banks not, had to get together and made that happen. Chill. But that's not that's out of necessity. It's not but because also there's they all... no use case. There's no use case. Exactly. Like, what is like the when use the case protocol was created? When fixed protocol was created, it was out of an actual necessity. It wasn't because they were all thirsty to perform some innovation theater, which is not <laughs> that's that's not going to be enough to get Goldman to sit around the table with J.P. Morgan. And oh, lo and behold, it wasn't. Well, you know what? At least I have fond moments um, of my interactions with some of the R3 team members, including our friend Kathleen Brightman, who <laughs> I gave her so much crap for the first time I met her because she was, we're on a panel together. She was promoting R3's like private blockchain mumbo jumbo. And I was talking about Bitcoin. Um, and then eventually she left that firm and worked full time on Tezos. But it was just richly ironic. Um, but oh I will gosh. never forget having a bunch of R3 people in a room telling me that Bitcoin was stupid and Bitcoin was going to fail. And basically we were going to go bankrupt and they were going to own the world. And I was like, great, call me in five 
five years. Bye-bye. So yeah, the reason I want to be clear, we're not just, we're not just ragging on R3 because it's fun, although it is kind of fun. The reason why this grinds my gears, the reason why this grinds my gears is because three years ago, this company was so just aggressive with the way that they came out of the gates and said, no, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, that's not the future. What is the future is our vision, our proprietary technology, and nothing has been done. I think that they had a few POCs running, maybe, that all got stuck in the POC wasteland along with so many other companies. What, so what with is that, POC? let's move on to another company, a proof of concept. So, so Yes. So let's talk briefly about um, ItBit, because I think people forget about BankChain. Um, ItBit was Bank a Bitcoin... They were a Bitcoin exchange, and actually, ITBIT was pretty successful um, because they had a New York uh, Bit license. They had a big OTC desk, um, and they then came out of the gate in 2015. Running. They still do, yeah, yeah, there, there. Um, they came out of the gate with this thing called Paxis, right? They were like splitting the company in two. They had ITBIT, which was Bitcoin stuff, but then they were doing Paxis. They had something called Bank Chain, and they were getting all of these companies around the table, all of these banks. And I think their idea was that they were going to put gold on a blockchain. Do you remember? Remember what the idea was for bank chain? So at first it was gold and then it was equities. And then I think it was gold and equities. And then I think that they kind of realized that they were biting off a lot more than they could chew. And then I think that they realized that, hey, actually crypto is back, baby, and our exchange is doing really well. And so I think that they've redoubled down on the it bit business as opposed to Paxos. Then there was DAH, or Digital Asset Holding, and Blythe Masters uh, was on many a magazine cover. She was going to be the queen of the blockchain. Melton, and who's what- Blythe Masters? Tell me who Blythe uh, Masters Bly- <laughs> well, Blythe is a Wall Street legend in her own right. Um, she worked at JP Morgan for a long time. She ran a bunch of divisions there, but she is probably best known for creating credit default swaps or weapons right. of n- nuclear destruction. <laughs> the, the Oppenheimer of Wall Street. <laughs> I love it. Um, But basically what DAH was going to do is take existing markets, rip out the back end and plug in their blockchain. They were actually starting to do this with ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange. I haven't heard about that project in a while. And Blythe recently actually announced she was leaving DAH. Um, I think she is going to go to different pastures. Can't speculate as to why, but I presume it likely has something to do with um, what is and is not possible at this point in time with quote unquote blockchain technology. Yeah. So, so that ASX project, I mean, that was all the rage two, three years ago. That was all anyone could talk about in this industry was, oh yeah, like ASX is, which is the Australian Securities Exchange, is, is ripping out its backend system and using digital assets blockchain. But as you say, no updates. So the last one that we need to cover, I think, I think it's the best, the best for last, is Chain. So I used to work at Chain. I did biz dev and strategy there. It's actually how I got my start working full time in the crypto space. So Chain started out its life as a Bitcoin developer API company. Uh, this was back in 2014. Adam Ludwin, the gang there, noticed that, okay, Bitcoin is is starting to take off. There's more developer activity around it, but it's really hard to interact with. They built some 
developer tools and some technology around that. Uh, and then over time, as they started to have more conversations with bigger institutions, NASDAQ, for example, I think approached Adam and was asking about Bitcoin, et cetera. And Chain ended up pivoting to service the needs of these bigger financial institutions, building sort of permissioned blockchain technology. Right. And I want to I want to cut in here because I remember being at Money 2020 in 2015, um, and I had met Adam just a few months earlier because Digital Currency Group was an investor in Chain, had invested when they were still a Bitcoin company. They had this massive booth at Money 2020, which, by the way, booths are expensive, so they had lots of that moolah, baby, that a lot of venture money, and they were showing how they were going to work with Nasdaq to take uh, private company stock, i.e., startup company stock, and put it on a blockchain. They're basically showing the first iteration of a security token. And uh, I forget what this project was called, but... Um, Link. They- Link. L-I-N-Q. Link. Yeah. With a Q. That's right. Hilarious. Hilarious. So yeah, anytime anyone says the word security token or anytime anyone claims to have issued the first security token, tell them no, because Adam and Chain did that back in 2014 with NASDAQ. But you know, to, to Adam and that team's credit, I think that they came to the realization that, okay, yeah, so there's a lot of interest from enterprises, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've found product market fit here. And that team started to explore pivoting back to public blockchains when, lo and behold, last year, they were acquired by Stellar, which I think is probably the happiest ending of, of any of these enterprise blockchain well, stories let's, that we've told. Let's be real. It's a happy ending because all of the investors made money and they didn't make a little money or just get their money back. They made a lot of money and they made a lot of money because of the Bitcoin price bubble. The crypto price boom um, enabled Stellar to spend a lot of money on buying chain to basically be their business development arm and to work with enterprises to help them use Stellar as the base protocol for their corporate innovation. That's my understanding. I don't know if that's right. Well, yeah. So it's a happy ending for investors. I think it's a happy ending for Chain. I would also say it's a happy ending for Stellar. So, but, but let's talk about we'll, unhappy we'll see endings. Who, yeah, we'll see who who has unhappy endings. Uh, okay, so DAH raised over 100 million. Chain raised over 50 million. R3 raised over 100 million. Paxis, I think, raised close to 50 million. These are all projects that are sort of like we're at half a billion dollars of capital raised. That's in this kind of gray area. Nobody really knows what's going on. There are also plenty of companies that failed. Most notably this week, Settle, which had raised close to 50 million dollars, was shut down, right? They blew through it in three years, I think. Um, probably even faster, hired a bunch of people, had all these bold claims, um, but ended up going nowhere. The graveyard of enterprise blockchain is littered with dead bodies, right? Um, Many of these companies are now trying to become crypto companies again, because I think as you actually pointed out, Jill, blockchain is not a business model. This to me is the most important takeaway. Blockchain is not a category. You can use blockchain technology to address categories like enterprise software, uh, trading systems, maybe it's clearing and settlement. These are specific use cases where you could use a technology that is a distributed ledger, but blockchain is not a business category. And I think people don't get this. Like blockchain doesn't have an addressable market. Even though these people will tell you you can blockchain everything in the world and therefore the addressable market is the entire universe and all energy in it. <laughs> exactly. 
And for me, a lot of these partnerships that we've mentioned, so the important thing to remember is that all of these startups, they were working with big established incumbents, R3 more than anyone else perhaps, but all of them were. That was the whole idea. And all of these partnerships remind me of Theranos, of Elizabeth Holmes, and Walgreens, right? Now, of course, lives weren't at stake in in these cases, but it feels like the same old story of the suits in the room getting bamboozled by some buzzwords and by a desire to play startup. Well, and what I love is um, there were actually a number of companies that were tracking um, investor calls. So public companies have regular investor calls when they release their 10Q quarterly reports or their 10K annual reports. And people are actually tracking on these investor calls how often the word blockchain was used, right? 2015, the word blockchain started to get used more in these calls. Then 2016, 2017, peak blockchain. And now the word doesn't really get used anymore. And by the way, this is not unique, right? Corporates go through these innovation cycles. It the peak of a cycle, they'll spin up a separate incubation arm, corporate venture funds get started. Like corporate venture funds to me are these really unique creatures. I've seen very, very few done well and very, very many done badly, but they throw money around like crazy, invest in all these things. There's supposed to be synergies with the business, but there's no real PL, right? There's no real profit and loss or PL in innovation. And so basically what you get is these redheaded stepchildren of the organization that have no real decision-making authority who are trying to figure out how to make quote-unquote innovation happen. And so um, I feel like we're now in a state of the world where everyone's kind of taking a deep breath, taking a step back, and they're like, okay, well, what is actually working? And unfortunately, um, in most cases, enterprises are realizing that, wait a minute, blockchain is not a use case. There are specific things we can do, and we see this with JP Morgan and a few other enterprises. Maersk, now there's some oil and gas companies who've decided to incorporate incorporate some aspects of blockchain technology to solve an existing problem they already had. But this isn't a business. Like This is purely a consulting kind of managed services business that you sell to people and firms who need to sound cool. That's my view. I'm super skeptical. Okay. So the reason why we're talking about this this week, the reason why we want to lend some clarity to what actually is a blockchain is because suddenly this narrative is back. And it feels like Groundhog Day for those of us who lived through it in 2015 and 2016. Uh, uh, I'm vomiting, Jill. I I feel ill. No, not on Hugo's desk, Meltem. Not on Hugo's desk. Stop it. (laughs) Poor Hugo. There's coffee and vomit everywhere. (laughs) Lately, I've noticed a whole slew of my favorite crypto investors, my favorite armchair philosophers, taking to Twitter, taking to Reddit, taking to whatever platform they have, taking to their newsletters, and talking about how 2019 will be the year of enterprise blockchains or the year of of permissioned blockchains. Now, to this, I say, no! No, God, please, no, no. This is the way that enterprise blockchain makes me feel. And I tweeted it. You know when Romy and Michelle, do you remember the the movie Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion? I do, of course. Okay, so Romy and Michelle uh, put on, uh, there are these two like ditzy girls. They're going to their high school reunion. They're like, okay, we have to be cool. We've basically done nothing with our lives. Like, what are we going to do? So they decide that they're going to become businesswomen. 
And their claim to fame is they invented the post-it. So there's this amazing scene where they put on blazers. They put on like these ridiculous business outfits and they look at each other and they go, okay, from this point on, we are professional, sophisticated business women. And that's how enterprise blockchain makes me feel. It's like the point of all of this, I did not get into crypto to shill blockchains to Wall Street. That is not the point of it at all. And so to me, all of these people who are like the biggest advocates for Bitcoin and down with the banks are now basically like tickling the of all of the big banks with this blockchain stuff. But um, look, here, here's the thing that's so deeply <laughs> ironic is that <laughs> everyone who is so all about like, oh, the Bitcoin revolution, <laughs> uh, this is down with the banks, like DeFi is basically going and prostrating themselves to the big banks so that they can get some business and deal flow. It's not everyone who's doing that. To be fair, it's not everyone. But there is way too much of it going on. And I think, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the last week, A, researching this episode, but then B, thinking about, like, where did this come from? Like, why are people talking about this again? And I think to me, it comes down to two main developments. One is JPM coin. And the second is what I call face chain or the Facebook blockchain team. Or Zuckbucks. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So here's, I want to talk about JP Morgan chain, JP Morgan coin. Um, Why don't you tell us what it is? And then I'll tell you my thoughts on it. Okay. So this is just straight from the marketing materials. um, And I will say I actually have a ton of respect for both Amber Balday and now Christine Moy, who now runs it. Uh, Amber formerly ran ran this project. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. JPM coin is a digital coin designed to make instantaneous payments using blockchain technology. Exchanging value, such as money, between different parties over a blockchain requires a digital currency. So we created the JPM coin. Now, this to me sounds a lot like what Digital Asset was trying to do a few years ago, what R3 was trying to do, what, yes, even Chain was trying to do. I guess maybe I'm a little more hopeful because I trust that the team within JP Morgan actually knows what JP Morgan's problems are that need to be solved. Um, but, you know, if you look at the track record of projects like this, one can't help but be at least a bit skeptical. But I know, Milton, you've actually spent time with Christine recently, and so you might have a little more information. Right. Um, so here's here's what I think is actually interesting, right? So to me, the big shift that's happening is we are seeing um, there's there's been a broader movement, right? I like to zoom out and look at the macro world around us. Just remove yourself from the crypto blockchain bubble and look at the no. world. More. No, I'm comfortable here. <laughs> no, push yourself outside your comfort zone. <laughs> Ask a question for once. Don't talk at me. Ask a question, Jill. Okay. So here's, um, here's what I think is happening, right? There's a broader theme of digitization that's playing out here. So there, uh, the last 40 years of financial evolution have really been about taking processes and markets that are really illiquid, that are really inside markets traded by a handful of brokers who know one another, and digitizing them and opening them up and then embedding them within institutions. We saw this in commodities. I lived through this in the esoteric asset that is carbon. We're seeing this with shipping and supply chains now where there are tons of companies trying to address digitization of these value chains. And eventually, everything is going to be financialized in some way. To me, that's really the underlying theme of blockchains and this this whole innovation around value transfer is we are now able to financialize and capitalize and securitize and, you know, make markets around things that historically have not been 
capitalized. And so to me, JP Morgan Coin, so they started out and they wanted to settle, and this has been talked about, um, debt transactions using a smart contract, right? They were like, hey, wait a minute, instead of issuing a debt transaction manually, what if we tried to do it as a smart contract? And then they realized, well, actually, if we do that, we're not solving any problem because on the back end of that contract, there's still money that needs to be wired. So even if we had an Oracle that would dictate to us when a wire needed to be sent, we're still dealing with all these inefficiencies around the correspondent banking system, which is how money moves around the world. Now, they did decide not to use uh, XRP. (laughs) XRP, the standard. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, XRP Army. Um, But they said, okay, well, we already have dollars. We trust the dollars that are in our system. So we're going to create a dollar that we can more easily send that's already native to this blockchain that we're using. Right. So really, it was just about embedding the value transfer component with the digital uh, contract component. And so that's where the idea came from. And actually, that makes sense to me. Now, the issue is everyone's getting their panties in a knot over JP Morgan coin. And I'm like, you're never going to be able to touch JPM coin. It is not for you. It is only for the institutions with which they do business, which does not include you. That's right. So I, I think that I think the important takeaway from what you just said there, Meltem, is that what a lot of what a lot of these enterprise blockchains are trying to solve is a last mile problem at the end of the day, right? Because you can digitize and you can make peer-to-peer as many processes as you want. But exactly. if at the end of the day what people want is cold, hard fiat currency, then you're still gonna have to find a way to send a wire, send an ACH transfer, go through the SWIFT network, et cetera, et cetera, but, to but get look that at Zoom. cash there. Look at Zoom. Look at TransferWise. All of these businesses that are trying to disrupt banking and financial services end up just relying on the exact same rails. Exactly. They're relying on the exact same rails. So basically, you're putting an innovation wrapper and a marketing wrapper around something that is functionally the same. Which is and why for problem. me, which is why for me, the most interesting work in the space remains in cryptocurrencies and in actually natively digital assets and giving those assets value. That's the hard part is getting those assets to actually be valuable so you don't have to rely on those old ancient crusty systems like the Swift network. But- Okay, so I'm going to play armchair philosopher. I don't do this often, but will you yes, indulge you me? Yes, you do. <laughs> oh, fine. <laughs> Call me out. Call me out. Fine. Get in there, Malcolm. Okay. okay, so here's what I think, right? Over the last uh, five, six years, what we've seen is the development of an entirely independent and separate market for cryptocurrencies. And really, functionally, this has been one of my big frustrations for a long time, which is why I ran these exchange workshops. For a long time, people have built everything on their own, right? So they built their own order books. They built their own ECNs or electronic communication networks, which is typically how exchanges interact. They've built entirely their own separate infrastructures. So the crypto market is really its own like separate market. And then the traditional financial market is its own separate market. And today the two don't connect. There is no bridge that connects them. So what's interesting to me is you have all these banks and financial institutions. And yes, we can laugh at um, enterprise blockchains. I think a lot of it's frankly a little silly. There's a fundamental garbage in garbage out problem that no amount of technology will 
solve. Like the blockchain alone is not sufficient. You need all sorts of other changes, um, including IoT. You need strong attestation um, to ensure the data that goes into blockchain is good, whatever, whatever. But what you are doing, what I think is interesting, is all of these banks and institutions that are using private forks of public chains like Quorum, which is a fork of the Ethereum chain, like Hyperledger, which has aspects of other chains, what we're doing basically to me is a Trojan horse to eventually get crypto into the bank and to connect these two markets that right now are separate. But in the future, when the next big run comes and when the next big kind of bubble comes, that's when to me the FIs are going to wake up and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of money to be made in servicing this asset class. By the way, this is what Fidelity is doing with their digital assets. I was just going to say that. I, this is Fidelity to a T. So Fidelity and if you started don't out. See that. Fidelity, I think, was very smart during the years of the blockchain hype, where they invested in not only just understanding like, oh, DLT technology, blah, blah, blah. But Abigail Johnson, the CEO of Fidelity, note how it's always the women, had Bitcoin miners running in her office and was investing in also understanding the the cryptocurrency side of the space. And now, lo and behold, Fidelity is investing uh, in becoming basically the custodian for institutions and on the institutional side for cryptocurrency. the custodial component is just one piece, right? Like JP Morgan coin is just a starting point. Really the point here is all of these crypto exchanges, in my view, have a short life left to live because the minute that normal financial institutions start offering crypto services, and it'll take time and it won't be for every coin. I mean, Fidelity's even come out and said, like, we don't know how we're going to do this for Ethereum because it's so different from Bitcoin and it's going to take time and they have high standards. But over time, all of these business models are going to get eroded because at the end of the day, it's, say I'm a retail investor, right? I don't want to have 30 different platforms that I have to go to to trade, to do my taxes, to get reports, to manage my portfolio. Like, I don't want that. Today, when I want an equity asset or when I want to buy a commodity or when I want to do anything, I go to one portal, say it's Schwab, say it's Fidelity. I log in with one username and everything I want is served to me in one place. And eventually these two markets are going to connect. I fundamentally believe that. And in that case, All of this infrastructure that's getting created is really just a starting point. It is the inception. It is the kernel in the minds of these executives that helps them get to that state where they realize, wait a minute, this is just another market. Now, am I personally excited about that? Not really. But do I think it will be massively helpful for the industry and advance the cause of Bitcoin? Definitely. All right. So that's one very redeeming quality, I think, of all of the work that's going on in the enterprise blockchain space, blockchains as a Trojan horse. I want to run through a few more of the redeeming qualities and where I think we might be going. I want to run through also the reason a lot of this is the reason why I worked at Chain and why I think that there's still a lot of hope for this whole world of blockchains in the enterprise world. Now, Meltem, first, I think we should run through what enterprise blockchain is explicitly not about, though. Yes, let's. It's not about liquidity. I hate that word. <laughs> it's not about liquidity. It's not about security. It's a, this is not inherently more secure technology than anything else. It's not about settlement times. Um, I think as the JP Morgan coin story with bank wires illustrates, that's not what we're talking about. It's not about encryption, okay? And cryptography is used in blockchains, but it's not about encryption. And it's not about cutting back office costs. 
That's right. Uh, a lot of enterprises tend to talk about this stuff as faster, cheaper, more efficient. It's not. Now, what might it be about? It might well, be about letting institutions and individuals custody their assets directly. Newsflash, this actually is not what happens today on most of Wall Street. Most assets, most securities are held by central security depositories. And they're held in street name, right? The whole reason that the SIPC and the FDIC and all of these other insurance entities exist is because these large institutions are basically big bearers of risk. Um, when you have a relationship with a bank, what they're doing is they're taking the risk of holding your money. And there are some protections in place, but as we've seen in prior financial crises, not here in the US, but in other places, there really is no guarantee if you give your money to the bank. This is, by the way, why my grandmother, my Turkish grandmother, um, for a long time while she was alive, would leave money in couch cushions. She would sew uh, one gram gold coins into the inside lining of couch cushions. So when she passed, wow. when my mom went to her house to go clean it out, we actually found obscene amounts of like cash and gold inside the furniture. It was ridiculous. This is this is on the Turkish side, I take it. Oh, yes. All my grandparents are in Turkey in a small village where actually oh, there there was no bank, right? Like, I don't think my grandma ever used an ATM. So she wanted to get cash. Um, that was a whole long convoluted thing. There was no bank. And these people didn't trust banks, right? We're talking about people wow. who've had a lot of issues with banking. Not your couch, not your Bitcoin, right? <laughs> That's right, baby. <laughs> so... All of this might be about letting institutions and individuals custody their assets directly. I want to say one more thing about this. That's an example of an individual. We talked for a second about CSDs, central securities depositories. Now, back in the day, back in the early days of Wall Street, there used to actually be trucks that would drive securities around from place to place, from bank to bank around lower Manhattan. They would stop off at JP Morgan and pick up all of the physical bonds and equity certificates that JP Morgan had traded with Deutsche Bank that day and then go and drive over to Deutsche Bank. Today's system, if you ask me, of using central securities depositories is not that much more efficient net-net. Um, Jill, as someone who just took and passed the Series 24, where half the test was about clearing and settlement operations, <laughs> I will attest because there are like 10 different tapes to which trades get reconciled. It's a mess. It's a disaster. So there's the something nice. Talk. There is something nice about institutions being able to custody their assets directly. And that's not something that can be done in this digital age until, lo and behold, now we have blockchains. So I think that this is an area where there's actual promise in enterprises using blockchains. Another area is that of transparency. So making yes. risk in the system more transparent. So the second thing that I think is really interesting, um, which nobody's really talking about, is actually cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology can go a long ways towards helping with some of the governance issues that plague the street. So today, one of the most popular ways to invest, not just for retail investors, but also for institutional investors, is through ETFs and indices, right? And the way these products work is you buy a basket of products that are actively or passively managed that are either thematic, so you can buy a biotech ETF, 
ETF or index fund that hold a variety of stocks um, and instruments that cater to the specific strategy or the specific sector. Now, one of the issues is um, in corporations, the governance process relies on not just the board, but on something called proxy voting. And there's a whole process where people have to participate in corporate governance and decision making around what members to add to the board, how much of a dividend will get paid. There are a number of decisions, right? And today, because of ETFs and indices, there is a zero proxy participation because, for example, I get letters from Vanguard, like electronic letters, probably once a quarter where it's like, hey, these 10 things are having a vote. I have no idea what's going on. So what I think is interesting to me is can you actually enable better governance in corporates by having a direct relationship between the holder of record and um, the votes that are happening? I think that's really interesting. Nobody's talking about governance, but I think corporate governance is going through to go through a massive, massive shift once we have more active participation made possible by blockchain-based records of ownership. And I hate to say that, but it's true. Yeah, I, I have to I have to plug here. Actually, Chain a few years ago worked on a, a POC. It was just a POC. It was just a pilot around doing. Uh, corporate governance leveraging blockchain technology through NASDAQ. So this, again, is an area that's been explored by some of these, uh, you know, former startups, the artist formerly known as Chain. Uh, And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned there and still a lot of promise in this as a space. Now, you talk Mm -hmm. about ETFs. What gets me about ETFs is the lack of transparency around them. And this, I think, is actually a third way and a third means by which enterprise blockchains might actually become interesting. And that's through making risk in the system more transparent. So ETFs are supposed to be transparent. You're supposed to be able to log on and see a representative sample of what is in this ETF that you hold, because an ETF is a bundle of underlying assets. Now, that's not actually how they work. They have to show you, yes, what is representative of the underlying assets, but they don't actually have to show you precisely what's in them for most ETF providers. And this can result in some really scary consequences because if I own a sort of bespoke ETF that probably has some illiquid underlying assets, they might show me a representative portfolio in which the assets are much more liquid. And sure, those assets might all be from the same industry or the same geography or have some relation to the assets that are actually within the ETF, but you don't know what's in them. Now, how can a blockchain help with this? Maybe it can, maybe it can't. I think that this is more probably actually about leveraging cryptography and ways mm-hmm. of of encrypting what is in the ETF while still being able while still being able, excuse me, to prove certain aspects of what comprises those assets. So if you could prove mm-hmm. certain things about what's in the ETF without disclosing the exact underlying asset, this would be a huge improvement. Well, and I think recently, just to bring bring back um, topical news, so here at the MIT Bitcoin Expo, where I'm at, um, Hester Pierce just went on stage and she talked about how what's going to prevent the next financial crisis is the work that's happening in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which I think is interesting, right? Um, This idea that more transparency in the system, more visibility as to where risk exists and how. And by the way, our episodes on credit, Jill, we talked about all the issues with the way crypto is evolving that may hinder its ability to have this sort of transparent risk management 
management aspect. But um, I think that is interesting that now we see people who are in positions of power looking at this technology, looking at the fact that a public ledger, you know, has certain features that would enable um regulators in particular uh, to enact certain policies more quickly or more effectively because there is this number one a better link between ownership um, and and uh, being able to actually implement these changes directly and then this increase in transparency and third you know this governance aspect but yeah, we'd be I- remiss sorry go ahead oh I think you were going the same direction I want to give a shout out to Caitlin Long here is that where you were going I was not going there, but let's, because Caitlin's done really great work here. So yeah, Caitlin Long works at, I think it was Morgan Stanley, right? She works on Wall Street, uh, had kind of a storied career there before moving into the enterprise blockchain space, uh, but has always been something of a diehard Bitcoiner at heart. And she made a lot of noise a few years ago around how blockchain technology could help with issues of leverage in the financial system. Um, And the example that she would always use was that of Dole Foods, which had more short interest outstanding in it, uh, or more shares that were claimed valid than actual shares outstanding uh, due to the leverage in the system and due to the Mm. short interest in Dole Foods. And so this is a really interesting case of you know, in in blockchain, you can't have assets be in two places at once, right? It's tempting to be able to say, okay, well, if we were using something like a blockchain to track shares of Dole Foods, then you wouldn't have the same issue. You'd have more transparency. That's right. And I think the last piece is privacy. And this is the one we talked about last week, our episode on surveillance capitalism. It's the one I personally am more interested in, is being able to transact privately is huge, right? Um, There is a lot of reasons that banks may not want to have transactions be public. This is why dark pools exist. This is why a whole slew of technologies has been built to help traders in particular in very liquid markets hide their moves. Um, And I think there are many, many ways in which privacy is fundamental to the functioning of a healthy financial system. So Jill, um, let's let's talk about it. I so I want to tell a little anecdote here. So do it, as, girl. As do probably it. most listeners know by now, as you know well, Melton, because I talk about this experience all the time, I spent the first few years of my career working as a bond trader on Wall Street. Now, most people think of Wall Street banks as being the ultimate financial intermediaries, and they are. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Wall Street banks actually deal themselves with additional intermediaries to move assets around, the intermediaries of the intermediaries, if you will. These are the interdealer brokers. So they help Wall Street move risk amongst itself. Now, the question is, why can't Wall Street banks just trade directly with each other? And a lot of the answer actually has to do with privacy. So you can think of it like a big poker game. I, over at Goldman, might be t- holding a terrible hand, but I don't want the rest of the table, JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, etc., to know that. Unlike in cards, though, I'm not just going to play the hand that I've been dealt. I'm going to trade my way to a better hand. So I might be trying to buy up a lot of a certain asset in order to get that better hand. I'll try to source this from clients, but I'll also try to source it from my competitors around the table. Again, JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley, etc. I've got to be subtle about it, though, because I don't want them to know that I'm the one with the bad hand. So I use an interdealer broker. Now these guys, and they're basically all guys, 
are supposed to provide me as their client with anonymity and confidentiality as they work to help me source those assets from the other players at the table. The problem here is that sometimes your broker's loyalty might run a little bit deeper to one of your competitors, and they might intentionally reveal your cards to that competitor. Now, several times this actually happened to me while I was working as a bond trader, in which I busted one of my brokers talking to the guy over at Deutsche Bank and referring to me pointedly as she. She's a big buyer of XYZ bond. She's stuck in this trade. She's got this. She's got that. Now, this might not have been a problem, except for the fact that I was the only female trader of those bonds in this industry. And so the intermediary who I was supposed to be trusting with my anonymity was not so subtly revealing to my biggest competitor what my exact position was. Right. But look, this is not just happening in stocks, right? When I was trading over-the-counter derivatives, um, same thing, right? The problem is that this is all about relationships. Life is about relationships. And so we create these tools, these systems that are supposed to enable privacy. But being able to actually trade with true anonymity, I think is what we're talking about here, can you actually verifiably prove that no one has seen your hand? That's valuable, right? There are a lot of people who'd pay a lot of money for that service. That would be nice. So I think that the important thing here is what we're talking about are actual real problems that the financial industry faces, right? The inefficiency of the back-end systems, the inefficiency of centralized securities depositories, governance issues around ETFs, transparency issues around ETFs and around leverage more broadly, and also privacy of transactions. Can blockchain solve any of these things? To be honest, I don't actually know. I hope so. I think so. I think, <laughs> Look, that, I think that they that's might. That's part of the point. But, but let me finish. But the problem is, is that most of the blockchain work that enterprises have been doing has just been for the sake of performance, has just been for the sake of marketing. It hasn't yet been applied to any of these issues that we've just outlined. And I would love for this next phase 2019 Groundhog Day for this next yeah. phase of enterprise blockchain application to actually address some of these issues. But in order to get there, it's going to have to be done by people who not only know the financial industry really well, but have also gone and had conversations with the people who are trying to run these projects, with Blythe Masters, with Adam Ludwin, with Chad Cascarillo, with Caitlin Long, in order to be able to actually make progress. But here's the other piece that we can't forget. If we think about a financial institution, if we think about what's going on in the banking sector more broadly, this is the lowest on their priority list, honestly. We look at the implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley. We look at the implementation of Dodd-Frank. I was a consultant, and consulting companies are making billions of dollars during these times selling new compliance back office capabilities to these firms. Banks are the most, some of the most, I should say, regulated entities in our world today. Today. Most of the employees at a bank deal with compliance or some form of compliance or some form of operational voodoo that has to happen to enable a bank to run. And it doesn't work that well. And we see this because of all the instances of money laundering that have happened just in the last year alone, where billions of dollars of fines have gotten paid. And there are many more investigations that are ongoing, um, including Goldman itself on a particular bond issue that we won't talk about oh, here. God. But but look, MDB. the business... <laughs> 
I want him to be. But the, the business of banking is messy. It's sloppy. It's imperfect. It's a number of different markets that have gotten stitched together over the course of five decades. And people are still running mainframes, right? People are still running like IBM mainframe computers. IBM actually oh. made a mainframe compatible blockchain. I kid you not. They made a mainframe. That. Yeah. If that is not like, if that's not telling, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know of, what is. I kind of want one of those just as like a, as sort of a, a memento. Yeah. Like an antique for my living room. Just like, yes. oh yeah, here's like, this is the mainframe blockchain. Well, I'll get it. I'll need to have a mainframe too, because our mainframes have to talk to one another and then we'll have to run like what? 3000 miles of cable between our respective homes. <laughs> no, Malcolm, I don't want it to actually work. I want it to just be my art installation as you walk through oh, my lobby. Okay. So we're truly making performance art here. But look, what I just want to say is, is this. There are only two levers in life that you can pull as an enterprise. One lever is cutting costs, right? And juicing the bottom line. The other lever is increasing revenues and juicing the top line. And the way you get profit is if your top line revenue, you subtract out your costs and you end up with the bottom line or profit. There's only two variables here that you can juice. It's either revenue or costs. And so to me, what's so interesting here is cryptocurrencies are going to be the way that we prove the revenue lever. Right now, everyone's really focused on the cost lever. And that's where blockchain fits today. But in the future, I think it's going to be the revenue lever that we need to pull. And that is by far the sexier story. That is by far the more interesting story. It's the more compelling story. And that is the way I think we may actually fundamentally see changes in how markets function. But I'm not going to hold my breath because as we know, change is really hard. And once you're in a particular system and you've invested a lot to be the best at playing that game or in that system, you're going to do everything you can to fight change. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you. So please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.